My name is Lily Madden, and I'm a proud Aranda, Bunjalung, Kalkadun woman from Gadigal country. The Daily Oz acknowledges that this podcast is recorded on the lands of the Gadigal people and pays respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander nations. We pay our respects to the first peoples of these countries, both past and present. Just a heads up, this episode deals with child sex abuse. If you're not feeling up to listening to this episode, we will be back in your ears tomorrow morning. Good morning and welcome to The Daily Oz. It's Tuesday the 28th of November. I'm Sam. I'm Zara. A study of 2,000 Australian men found nearly 10% of respondents had committed a sexual offence against a person under the age of 18. In today's Deep Dive, TDA's podcast producer Nina Kopel speaks to lead investigator of the study, Dr. Michael Salter, he's the associate professor at UNSW, about who is perpetrating these offences. So it really sort of paints a picture of, as it were, sort of the person you'd least suspect of being a child sex offender. And what can be done to stop them. But first, Ara, what's making headlines this morning? Israel and Hamas have agreed to extend a pause in fighting by two days. Qatar's foreign ministry, which has helped mediate the deal, said the extension is, quote, in order to deliver additional aid into Gaza and release the largest possible number of hostages and prisoners. The last day of the ceasefire was initially set to be Monday local time. A new report into Australian school standards has found national curriculums aren't doing enough to meet learning benchmarks. Education research and consulting group Learning First found that by the time Australian students reach high school, they've learned about half as much science content as students in other countries. For example, it found that from kindergarten to year eight, the Australian curriculum covers 44 topics overall, compared to England, which covers 84 topics. The report also found gaps in Australian curriculums are adding to the difficulties being experienced by teachers. The defamation trial brought forward by Bruce Lerman against Network 10 and Lisa Wilkinson will enter its fifth day today. Of course, we did a podcast on this topic earlier last week, and I will throw the link in the show notes. During cross-examination yesterday, Lerman admitted to lying to his former boss, Senator Linda Reynolds, in a 2019 letter that said he was in Queensland when he wasn't. It comes after he admitted last week to providing three different stories to different parties about why he was in Parliament House on the night of the alleged rape of Brittany Higgins. Lerman has and continues to maintain his innocence. And today's good news, Zara, what have you done this week? You're setting me up for failure here. Well, you've done less than an Australian woman who will attempt a Guinness World any, Record. Any Australian woman or this particular This Australian? particular one. Okay. She is going to attempt a Guinness World Record for the longest ultramarathon completed in a polar region. Donna Urquhart will take on some of the world's coldest, windiest and driest conditions when she starts the ultramarathon in Antarctica on the 4th of December. As part of the run, Urquhart is raising money to encourage girls and women to participate in sport. Michael, thank you so much for joining us on The Daily Oz this morning. Great to be here. You've launched the findings from the largest survey of its kind, where you asked Australian men about their sexual feelings and behaviours towards children. What did you learn about the prevalence of those thoughts and feelings? So high level, what we found was that about one in six Australian men report sexual interest in people under the age of 18, and just around one in 10 men reports 
some kind of sexual offending against children. So that gives us an idea of the scale of the issue we're dealing with. But you didn't just look at the numbers. You also started to build a profile of who these men are. Are they married? Are they single? Mm. Where they work? Can you paint a bit of a picture of who these men are that we're talking about? So this was a bit of a surprise for us. We asked a lot of demographic questions. Yeah, just age, background, income, relationships, these sorts of things. And what we found was that, you know, men who are abusing children superficially on average seem to be doing better than men who don't abuse children. So, you know, more likely to be married, tending to be a higher income, tended to be living in the city. We found that they had pretty good social support scores. So we asked whether they had good friendships, good connections at work, relationship satisfaction. All of that was looking actually quite good for those men. So it really sort of paints a picture of as it were, sort of the person you'd least suspect of being a child sex offender. These men looked quite premeditated. They were more likely to use like encrypted social media apps. They were more likely to be on the dark web, more likely to own cryptocurrency and more likely to be paying for things on the on, online with cryptocurrency. So they also seemed to be people who were taking a number of steps to hide what they were doing online in particular. I think that word premeditated speaks volumes because I guess it starts to paint a picture of what we know about who's offending, but also how you can prevent offending. So what did you learn about what those indicators are and how we can stop people before they do become offenders? Something that stood out really clearly in our research was around childhood adversity, that Childhood trauma and adversity seems to have a role to play in impacting boys' development such that some boys, not all obviously, but for some boys, childhood trauma, adversity, abuse has a role in the development of sexual feelings towards children. And so what it really means is that child protection, child safety is kind of a double win, as it were. Of course, we need to keep children safe because that's a moral prerogative. But when we keep kids safe, that has an intergenerational effect. It actually helps keep the next generation of children safe. I think the other high level finding for us was around internet regulation. Seven and a half percent of men have committed some kind of online sexual offence. Um, And they're really committing those offences through commercial social media platforms, internet service providers who just don't have child protection safeguards built in. It really flags that at the moment the internet is way too available for the facilitation of sexual harm to children and the technology sector's got a long way to go. I want to come back to that idea of prevention. But before we do, one of the things I I don't think we've discussed yet is pornography and the role it can play in indicating potential perpetrators. What did you learn about that space? Something that we know about child sex offenders is often they're sort of sexually fairly diverse. Like we tend to focus on their sexual interest in children, obviously, because that's illegal. But it's not uncommon in a forensic setting for you know, clinicians who treat sex offenders, that they're reporting that these men are actually sexually, they're sort of like quite hypersexual. And that really came through in our data. So these men are watching much more pornography than your average man, but also the pornography that they're viewing, it's more likely to be violent and forceful. And something that came through quite strongly was that child sex offenders are much more likely to consume animal pornography And the reason why we asked that, and it seems a bit strange to ask that, but it's that sexual interest in children, it's a sexual pathology, it's a sexual illness, 
and we're dealing with people who are sexually disordered, who have other sexual arousal patterns that are, you know, really quite deviant. Do you think that part of the solution here is about really investing in mental health for men and for survivors of abuse, for example? I think I remember in your report, it said that almost 30% of those who told you they had sexual feelings for children also said they wanted help. A partner for us in this study is Stop It Now Australia, which at the moment is a pilot program for people that have sexual feelings or are worried about their sexual behaviours towards children. And it certainly seemed in our study that having sexual feelings towards children was actually really stressful. So stressful, the men were quite depressed. And you can, I mean, that makes a certain kind of sense. And it was true for the men that were sexually abusing children. They were really anxious and depressed as well. And it may well be that there's sort of a bi-directional relationship there that firstly having these sexual interests is quite upsetting, but also for the men who have acted on those sexual interests, that that's really stressful as well because they're keeping a, a kind of a secret. So Stop It Now Australia was an important partner for us on this project and I think a really important initiative for us to support in Australia, as uncomfortable as it might feel, really encouraging men and boys who realise that they're sexually attracted to kids to reach out for help and to do that really early. Um, Unfortunately, the mental health workforce in Australia is not trained to deal with people in the community that do have sexual feelings towards kids. And what it means is that the only way for these men to get treatment is actually to commit an offence, get arrested, get charged, you know, get, go to prison, and then they can you know, get access to clinical treatment. So we really need to be intervening with those men way upstream really early on. So we've talked about mental health interventions. You mentioned in passing some of the the responsibility of social media platforms to be doing a better job at monitoring their sites. What role does government play here in acting on the, the evidence you found and the indications of potential perpetrators to either prevent offences or to, to find people once they have offended? I mean, government intervention here is absolutely crucial. You know, the question I'm constantly asked as a child sexual abuse researcher when I talk about my findings is what can parents do? You know, what can parents do? And I understand that and I'm happy to talk to that. But in the end, it's not the responsibility of parents. It's not the responsibility of children. It's government. Now, in the online regulation space, without question, Australia is considered a world leader. The eSafety Commission has really unparalleled powers compared to regulators overseas to demand action, demand transparency, demand accountability from the technology sector. The issue is the technology sector is not bound by Australian laws. So that's a real challenge for us. I think something that has been disappointing in the Australian context, because there's no question that pornography has a role here, we need more structure in the adult pornography space. We have 6.7% of Australian men who have intentionally accessed child sexual abuse material. Two-thirds of those men accessed that content when they were teenagers. And that tells you just how widely available illegal content is, and it's intermingled and distributed with adult content. Um, So, you know, there's recently been some efforts to bring in, you know, age controls around access to adult content. I think that that really is the first step. The government's really, I think, kicked that can down the road, whereby it's going to take five or six years before we do bring in age verification for adult content. I do think that that's a mistake. I 
respect that this is a complex space, but I think we really need to see action in the next two or three years. I think a five or six year window is a real lost opportunity. I think a good place to end speaks to that question you said people ask you all the time, which is if you're a parent, it must be very scary to hear the kind of statistics we've spoken about today and to know how to look out for your kids. But also I noticed in your report mention of the fact that, you know, we do need to educate kids, but also the burden on protecting children should not be on children, mm. you know? Mm. So I guess, yeah, what do you say to parents and, and their families about how to be safe online? I think we need to be realistic with kids about what the internet is, which just at the moment is it's really unsafe. You know, we, we had a bath toy that was recalled in Australia because I think it was six kids cut themselves on the toy in the bath. And so like thousands of toys are recalled. And yet, you know, we have thousands of kids being abused on social media platforms and nothing is done. So we don't have the settings right. I think we really need to be really honest with kids about that. And I think we also need to be age appropriate when we're having these conversations with kids with online safety. Yes, we're much more locked down and in control with younger kids. That makes a lot of sense. I think for some parents who really try and restrict their kids to keep them safe, both online and offline, that's understandable. But there comes a point where your teenager, if you're too restrictive, will just start lying to you and will just start keeping secrets from you. And that's not what that's not what you want. So I think it's an honest conversation. What we really need kids to understand is if they get into trouble online, that we are absolutely on their team. They don't need to keep secrets. They won't be in trouble. We will support them. I think that's really important. Michael, thank you so much for your time today. I really appreciate it. Thank you. If this episode brought up anything for you, you can call Lifeline on 13 11 14 or 1800 Respect on 1800 737 732. We'll be back again tomorrow, but until then, have a wonderful day.